Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises on the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him, I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Then she turned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep, so they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told him. But Martha responded, the dead man's sister protested. Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell would be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you, if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in headcloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Let's pray, church. Father, we just come before you in this moment. And we just ask for your help. That's it. Just walk through this with people. This is a part of life. We see death. God, I just pray that we would know in this moment that Jesus weeps with us. That he walks with us. That he still performs the miraculous. He still brings healing. He still brings the dead to life. Whether it's in this world or the next, we'll see Tyler again. And we hold on to that hope, God. And we believe that today and know that you are the resurrection and the life. Holy Spirit, come right now. Comforter, teacher. Bring us the words. Bring us the comfort. Draw us to Scripture. Draw us to your word that is living and active. Help us to see it and read it and know what is from you, how to understand who you are, your character, your nature. Help us to learn more about you, to draw close to you, to draw near to you in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat, church. I don't really have, yeah, 
I don't really have anything today. Um, I, I know Tyler. I know his family. I knew Marcus. I remember doing that funeral and, and reading that passage on Lazarus. And, and Jesus was angry. That's what it says. When he was weeping, he was angry. He was angry at what the enemy had done. He was angry at what the enemy had brought into this world. This wasn't the way God created the world. Sin brought death into the world. Sin brought death, sickness, everything into the world. Jesus came to correct what sin had brought in. That's it. That's why he came. That's what he came to do, to correct what the enemy had brought in. This whole week, I, I keep coming back to this story in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1 through 5. This is just where the Holy Spirit's led me all week. In the spring of the year when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. They made sure to tell him that. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. And when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. If you don't know the rest of the story, you should go on and read it. Uh, throughout the day today, find a moment to finish it. But what David does is, is he begins to try to cover up his sin. He has Uriah killed and murdered by putting him at the front line of battles. He knows what he's done is wrong. And it all started by not doing what he knew was right. Sometimes we just look at sin and we think, I'm just supposed to not do that. But sometimes Sin is when we don't do the right things he's called us to. He called him to go to war. He stopped going to war one year. Church, he's called us to go to war. When we stop going to war, that's when the enemy gets in. That's the first step before the step of disobedience. There's a first step before that first step of disobedience to God's word, and it's when we stop going to war. It's when we say, I, I don't have to fight anymore. I, I can just put it on cruise control. I can coast. I'm going to make it in the end. I know I've got my heaven insurance. I got baptized one time at summer camp. I'm good. I'm just going to put this into cruise control and roll into heaven. That is when you're vulnerable to the enemy who prowls around like a lion looking for those to devour. That one moment changed David's life. But it didn't just change his life, it changed his family's life. Every decision we make is bigger than just us. We believe in the power of the individual in this country. 
In the Western church, we think it's all about me. I I can be my own church in myself. I don't need the church. I'm fine on my own. I don't need a pastor or anybody to tell me what I should or should not do, how I should live my life. I don't need somebody to tell me how to interpret the word of God because I'm a church unto myself. That's what we have, a nation full of churches unto themselves who refuse to gather together Even though he tells us in Hebrews, do not neglect gathering together, the church, we need community, we need each other. The church is a gift, it's not a burden, but we've looked at it as a burden. We've said, I don't need people telling me how to live my life. I'll pick and choose from this buffet, this book, what I believe is truth and what I believe, oh, that's outdated. That doesn't matter anymore. We don't really have to live that way anymore. Let me tell you something, his law His good and perfect law, it is the will of the Father. We think we can have God without the law. We think we can have God, we can have grace, we can have Jesus, and we don't need the law. Jesus did not come to wipe out the law, to erase it, to say, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. No, no, no. He came to fulfill it. And now we have the Holy Spirit living within us if we've made him Lord and Savior, which means we have the mind of Christ in us And if we would submit to his spirit, his Holy Spirit within us, we would see very quickly that he loves the law. The law is who he is. He is good and perfect. He upheld the law to break the power of the law over us. And now you can walk in freedom. It's not bondage anymore. It's freedom when you walk in the Spirit. Let me tell you something. These last two years of revival, he has shown me that. I used to think, like David, I had to hide and bury my sin. And all that did was create a hard outer shell. I remember doing Marcus's funeral. And I remember thinking, I, I didn't cry once. I, I was sad. Like, death is sad. But I just remember thinking at one point, like, I'm... Everybody else is crying and going through these emotions and weeping. And I just remember thinking, no, I'm just really, I'm, I'm tough. I'm one of those tough Christians. I'm built different. Like, I, I'm, I'm more spiritual than other people because I really understand spiritual truth. I was a fool. I was. Because I had built up such a hard shell on the outside, I didn't know how to feel anymore. I didn't know how to deal with emotions because I'd been taught my whole life, by my family, by the church, that if you got problems, if you got emotions, if you got feelings, if you got anything going on within you, you just need to bury it. You need to bury it down deep and never let it out. Don't tell anybody because that's weakness. These last two years of revival, the Holy Spirit's been teaching me that's not weakness. He's been teaching me that's foolishness to try and bury it and to never deal with it. When you look at the story of David, what happens, it's a tragedy. God sends a prophet named Nathan to rebuke David for what he's done. And when confronted with his sin, here's what happens. Here's how David responds. 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm right in here. I'm going to jump in the middle. I'm sorry, Scott. You don't know where I'm going to be. I don't know where I'm going to be. We're going to see right here. Verse 9, Scott, if you can find it, I believe in you. Why then, this is from Nathan. The Lord has given Nathan this word to give David. Why then have you despised 
the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed. When we despise, when we despise the Lord, we despise his word. Who, who does John say the word is? The word is Jesus. The word came down in the flesh. We despise Jesus, the one who came and died for us when we continually live in our sin, abusing grace. Nathan tells him, why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword. Our sin, our choices to walk in disobedience, they don't just affect us. They affect our families. Every choice we make in this world is warfare. You are waging warfare against powers and principalities at work in this world that want to turn your hearts away from God. In these moments right here, they want you to be convinced that God is at fault, that he is the one causing you pain. He is the one driving this nail into your hands right now. Whatever you're going through, it's his fault. Turn from him because the world can offer you relief. The world and what it has to offer is better than what God has to offer. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. That is his goal, to deceive God's people into turning from him, to turning from the healer. Your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. That weighs on me every day. When I lash out at my kids, when I let my anger get the best of me, when I lose it, God hits me so hard later on with verses like this, that every decision I make, all the words I speak over my kids, I'm either speaking life or speaking death into their lives. The power of life and death is in the tongue. The words we speak over our family matter. They matter. I have to repent weekly sometimes daily to my kids. I have to pull Maverick aside on his bed before we can even pray at night, and I have to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the kind of dad I was today. I'm sorry I talked to you like that. I'm sorry I lost it like that. I'm sorry. (laughs) This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. There's consequences for our actions. I will give your wives to another man before your eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. There's no secrets from the living God. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt, utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. 
Sometimes we, we just think, oh, it's just a little sin. Oh, it's just this one time. I, I won't do it again. I just kind of need this, this one time. Because I don't know how to deal with everything else going on inside of me. Because all we've been taught is to bury and stuff everything down. But the truth is, there's power when you bring it out into the light. There's power and freedom when you confess and repent. When you bring that stuff out into the light. I'm not saying by yourself, because you're not a church unto yourself. You're not. You need the church. You need God's people. There is power and healing in confession and repentance. And so when we gather together and we offer these moments through communion or at the end of service, we offer these moments where you can go and you can find somebody to pray with. You can find somebody from our prayer team. You can find a pastor. You can find whoever. But you can come and you can confess and repent. And I'm telling you, nobody's going to judge you here. We're going to pray for you and we're going to help you walk through healing because that's what we're walking through. That's what God is walking us through in our lives. That's what he's been walking me through these last two years. He's been showing me healing and freedom that I never knew was possible. And he wants to set some people in here free today. In Jesus' name, he's going to set you free today. I believe that. But you got to let him. You have to choose to open your mouth because the power of life and death is in the tongue. You have to speak it. You have to bring it out into the light from the darkness, from hiding, and confess and repent. And once you do, everything that the enemy is telling you right now, don't say it, don't tell anybody. You can deal with this on your own. That's a lie from him. The devil is a liar. Don't listen to him. Rebuke him in the name of Jesus and say, no, no, no. I know who my God is. I know what he's done for me. And I know that there's freedom in his house. Walk in that freedom. Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. That's a hard phrase right there. He warns him, your child will die. Because of your sin, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food. He lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of this household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill. They said, what drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied, he is dead. Verse 20. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes, and he went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. The same Lord that sent that illness that took his child. That's what that says right there. We have a hard time dealing with that in our minds as believers. We think, no, 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 God would never. God did. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. We pray for the miraculous here. We believe that he still moves and does the miraculous. We've seen it. I was believing for it for Tyler. 
his friend Caleb, he and I, we went last week. And we did what the Bible said, because that's what the Bible says to do. Anoint with oil, lay hands on, and pray. And we did that, and I'm telling you, in that moment, we felt the Holy Spirit, his power and presence in the room. He went out from us into Tyler. I'll testify to that. He was there with us in that moment. We didn't see the miracle that day. His family didn't see the miracle they were praying and hoping and interceding for. Our church was praying and hoping and interceding for. But what do we do when we don't see the miracle we wanted? We get up and we worship. That's hard. Just think great is his faithfulness. But he's the only one worth worship. He's still king, and he's still our only hope. And David knew that and understood that. His advisors, verse 21, were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. We will go to them someday. We will see them again. That's the hope we have. That's the hope that David holds on to. That's the hope that drove him to go and worship the king in that moment. Second Samuel 13. I'm not going to read this whole thing. I'll, I'll sum this one up for you. This is David's life going on, what happens. David's son, Absalom, had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. Jump down there to verse 6. If you're following along, 2 Samuel 13, verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, David, Amnon asked him, Please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish. As I watch, then I can eat it from her own hand. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone, get out of here, Amnon told his servants. So they all left. Then he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him, but as she was feeding him, he grabbed her 
and demanded, come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried, don't be foolish, don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please just speak to the king about it. He will let you marry me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. She left in shame. Verse 20, her brother Absalom saw her and asked, is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now. Keep quiet for now. Don't talk about it. Don't tell anyone. Don't deal with it. Bury it. This is what the enemy wants. David's choice to try to hide and live in secrecy, to try to build up these walls, to try and bury things, his choice to walk in disobedience to the Lord's commands, it didn't just affect him, it affected his entire family. The Bible talks about generational sin being passed down. We see it here in the story of David. Stuff it down. Don't talk about it. Don't you worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard what had happened, he was angry. As any dad should be. If that's going on in your house, you should be angry. He was angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, nobody speaks about what's going on. They just bury it down deep and they let it fester and they give the enemy a foothold. That's what anger and bitterness is. It is a foothold for the enemy. This is how he works and this is where he thrives. When we bury it down deep and we never bring it out to the light. And we never talk about it. And we try to just handle it on our own. That's where he thrives. David heard about it. He was angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. It doesn't say that David went and talked to Amnon. It doesn't once say he went and confronted him about this. He just was angry. That's it. Two years later, two years just sitting on this, letting it fester and live inside of you. What are you holding on to right now that you've been holding on to for two years, that you've been holding on to for 10 years, that you've been holding on to for 20 years? That hurt and that offense and that anger welling up inside of you. It starts out as a foothold for the enemy. He turns that into a stronghold. That's what the enemy wants to do with our hurt and our offense, whether it's at each other or towards God. He wants to turn it into a stronghold where he lives and thrives and he takes up residence within us. Don't let the enemy have a place within you. Bring it out into the light. Verse 
chapter 13, verse 37. Absalom hatches a plan. He invites all of the brothers, all of David's sons. He invites them to a feast. And at this feast, he orders his servants at his command to kill his brother Amnon. When this happens, all the other brothers go running back to the kingdom from where this feast was being held. Verse 37, and David, this is after David's found out, and David mourned many days for his son Amnon. Absalom fled to his grandfather, Talmai, son of Imiad, and king of Geshur. He stayed there in Geshur for three years, and King David, now reconciled to Amnon's death, longed to be reunited with his son Absalom. You have a brother raping a sister, another brother killing that brother. Now that brother on the run, separated from his family. Those small choices that we think they only affect us, it's just about us. This won't bother or hurt or have any impact on anyone else in our lives. That's where it all started. When David refused to go out to war, when kings went to war, that's when the enemy brought the war to his doorstep and into his family. Worship team, I'm going to invite you guys to come up as we get ready to close out here. Eventually, Absalom is brought back into the kingdom. And it says this, in chapter 14, verse 33, so Joab told the king what Absalom had said. Then at last David summoned Absalom after being separated for these last couple years. And Absalom came and bowed low before the king, and the king kissed him. That was it. Chapter 15, verse 1. After this, Absalom... He bought a chariot and horses, and he hired 50 bodyguards to run ahead of him. He got up early every morning and went out to the gate of the city. When people brought a case to the king for judgment, Absalom was right there at the gate. The gate was where everything happened. This is where business transactions happened. This is where announcements happened. They didn't have social media. They didn't have newspapers. If you wanted to find out the news of the day, you went to the gate where people were coming and going. And Absalom, he sat there at the gate. And people, as they were bringing their cases to the king for judgment, Absalom would ask them where in Israel they were from. And they would tell him their tribe. Then Absalom would say, you've really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I were the judge. Then everyone could bring their cases to me for judgment, and I would give them justice. When people tried to bow before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand. And that word right there, when it says he took them by the hand, it's the same word used when it says Amnon grabbed Tamar. It's that same word, that same language. What is he doing here? He is grabbing the kingdom from David. He is taking it by force. 
That's why he was sitting there at the gate. And David let him sit at the gate. He never dealt with what had been buried in the dark. And he let him have a place at his gate. Who are you letting sit at your gate right now? What are you letting sit at your gate right now that has access to you, to your heart, to your mind, to your soul, to your spirit? Who are you tolerating to sit at the gate? What are you tolerating and not dealing with? There's stuff you've buried inside and, and you let it into your gate and you've let it live there for too long without dealing with it. David didn't deal with it. He didn't confront it. There's something right now. The Holy Spirit is telling you. He's convicting you in your hearts, your minds, your souls. You know the Holy Spirit is saying this. You need to confront this now while you still can. You need to confront this now for your kids. You need to confront this now for your kids' kids. Break this off your life. In Jesus' name, that's what I'm praying for right now. That you would break it off in Jesus' name today. That you would come forward. That you would find somebody. That you would speak the truth out loud that you've been hiding. That you thought you couldn't tell anybody. Let me tell you something. There's no judgment here. There's freedom in this house. Don't let the enemy convince you that you have to bury it and live this way for the rest of your life. You don't. You don't. Don't let him sit at your gate any longer. When people tried to bow before him, Absalom would have let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and he kissed them. What did Judas do when he came and betrayed Jesus? He grabbed him and he kissed him on the cheek. That's where betrayal happens. It happens with a kiss. It looks sweet. It sounds good. It seems like the right thing to do. The devil is a liar and a deceiver. Don't believe him today. Instead, he took them by the hand and kissed them. Absalom did this with everyone who came to the king for judgment. So he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. The enemy is still trying to steal our hearts today. That's it. He wants to steal our hearts from the king. Do you believe that? The king loves you. He is for you. Don't believe the lies and the kisses of the enemy anymore. Don't let him sit at your gate any longer. Rebuke him in the name of Jesus. All power and authority has been stolen. When Jesus went down to Hades, he stole the keys of death from him. He's delivered us into life. He's the resurrection. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Walk in it today. Walk in that freedom. Church, would you stand up as we close? After four years, Absalom said to the king, let me go to Hebron to offer a, offer, offer a sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill a vow I made to him. For while your servant was at Geshur and Aram, I promised to sacrifice to the Lord in Hebron if he would bring me back to Jerusalem. The enemy's a liar. The enemy looks righteous sometimes. The enemy's a Pharisee. All right, the king told him, go and fulfill your vow. So Absalom went to Hebron. But while he was there, he sent secret messengers to all the tribes of Israel to stir up a rebellion against the king. As soon as you hear the ram's horn, his message read, you are to say Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. 
He took 200 men from Jerusalem with him as guests, but they knew nothing of his intentions. When Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ethiopia, one of David's counselors who lived in Gilo. Soon many others also joined Absalom, and the conspiracy gained momentum. Don't let the devil gain any more momentum today. Stop him at the gates. Close him out from your life today. Hebrews. The devil, he wants to steal the throne. Just like Absalom wanted to. He wanted the throne. He wanted it. Let me tell you something. Hebrews 2, verse 1. We must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think we can escape it if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself, and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak. And God confirmed this message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chooses. And furthermore, it is not angels who control the future world we are talking about. They have no power. They have no control. For in one place the scriptures say, what are mere mortals that you should think about them or a son of man that you should care for him? Yet you made them only a little lower than the angels and you crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. As a son and daughter in the kingdom, you've been given authority over all things. You have authority to cast out every liar, every demon, every power and principality in Jesus' name. Walk in your authority today. When he comes to try to have a place at your gate, you deny him and you rebuke him and you say, no, 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 I know you're a liar. And I won't let you sit on my throne because the King of kings, the Lord of lords, he sits on the throne of my heart and we're gonna worship him today. 